Chapter Five of Headlong Hall by Thomas Love Peacock. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Five, The Dinner. The sun was now terminating his diurnal course, and the lights were glittering on the festal board. When the ladies had retired and the burgundy had taken two or three tours of the table, the following conversation took place. Squire Headlong. Push about the bottle. Mr. Escott, it stands with you. No heel-daps. As to skylight, Liberty Hall. Mr. McLaurel. Really, Squire Headlong, this is the van to itself. You have certainly discovered the terrestrial paradise. But the floors were better liquor than milk or honey. The Reverend Dr. Gaster. <coughs> Mr. McLaurel, there is a degree of profaneness in that observation which I should not have looked for in so staunch a supporter of church and state. Milk and honey was the pure food of the antediluvian patriarchs, who knew not the use of the grape, happily for them. Tossing off a bumper of burgundy. Mr. Escott. Happy indeed. The first inhabitants of the world knew not the use either of wine or animal food. It is therefore by no means incredible that they lived to the age of several centuries, free from war and commerce and arbitrary government and every other species of desolating wickedness. But man was then a very different animal to what he is now. He had not the faculty of speech, he was not encumbered with clothes, he lived in the open air, his first step out of which, as Hamlet truly observes, is into his grave. His first dwellings, of course, were the hollows of trees and rocks. In process of time he began to build, thence grew villages, thence grew cities. Luxury, oppression, poverty, misery, and disease kept pace with the progress of his pretended improvements, till from a free, strong, healthy, peaceful animal he has become a weak, distempered, cruel, carnivorous slave. The Reverend Dr. Gaster Your doctrine is orthodox, in so far as you assert that the original man was not encumbered with clothes, and that he lived in the open air. But as to the faculty of speech, that it is certain he had, for the authority of Moses. Mr. Escott. Of course, sir, I do not presume to dissent from the very exalted authority of that most enlightened astronomer and profound cosmogonist, who had, moreover, the advantage of being inspired. But when I indulge myself with a ramble in the fields of speculation, and attempt to deduce what is probable and rational from the sources of analysis, experience, and comparison, I confess I am too often apt to lose sight of the doctrines of that great fountain of theology and geological philosophy. Squire Headlong Push about the bottle. Mr. Foster Do you suppose the mere animal life of a wild man living on acorns and sleeping on the ground comparable in felicity to that of a newton ranging through unlimited space and penetrating into the arcana of universal motion to that of a lock unravelling the labyrinth of mind to that of a lavoisier detecting the minutest combinations of matter and reducing all nature to its elements to that of a shakespeare piercing and developing the springs of passion, or of a Milton, identifying himself 
as it were, with the beings of an invisible world. Mr. Eskett. You suppose extreme cases, but on the score of happiness, what comparison can you make between the tranquil being of the wild man of the woods and the wretched and turbulent existence of Milton, the victim of persecution, poverty, blindness, and neglect? The records of literature demonstrate that happiness and intelligence are seldom sisters. Even if it were otherwise, it would prove nothing. The many are always sacrificed to the few. Where one man advances, hundreds retrograde, and the balance is always in favour of universal deterioration. Mr. Foster Virtue is independent of external circumstances. The exalted understanding looks into the truth of things, and in its own peaceful contemplations rises superior to the world. No philosopher would resign his mental acquisitions for the purchase of any terrestrial good. Mr. Eskett In other words, no man whatever would resign his identity, which is nothing more than the consciousness of his perceptions as the price of any acquisition, but every man without exception would willingly effect a very material change in his relative situation to other individuals. Unluckily for the rest of your argument, the understanding of literary people is for the most part exalted, as you express it, not so much by the love of truth and virtue as by arrogance and self-sufficiency, and there is perhaps less disinterestedness, less liberality, less general benevolence, and more envy, hatred, and uncharitableness among them than among any other description of men. The eye of Mr. Eskert, as he pronounced these words, rested very innocently and unintentionally on Mr. Gall. Mr. Gall? You allude, sir, I presume, to my review. Mr. Eskett? Pardon me, sir. You will be convinced it is impossible I can allude to your review, when I assure you that I have never read a single page of it. Mr. Gall, Mr. Treacle, Mr. Nightshade, and Mr. McLaurel? Never read a review! Mr. Eskett? Never. I look on periodical criticism in general to be a species of shop where panegyric and defamation are sold, wholesale, retail, and for exportation. I am not inclined to be a purchaser of these commodities or to encourage a trade which I consider pregnant with mischief. Mr. McLaurel? I can readily conceive, sir, you would not willingly encourage any dealer in panegyric but for the manner in which you speak of the first critics and scholars of the age, I should think you would have a little more predilection for defamation. Mr. Eskett? I have no predilection, sir, for defamation. I make a point of speaking the truth on all occasions, and it seldom happens that the truth can be spoken without some stricken dear pronouncing it a libel. Mr. Nightshade? You are perhaps, sir, an enemy to literature in general. Mr. Eskett? If I were, sir, I should be a better friend to periodical critics. Squire Headlong? Buzz! Mr. Treacle? May I simply take the liberty to inquire into the basis of your objection? Mr. Eskett? I conceive that the periodical criticism disseminates superficial knowledge and its perpetual adjunct vanity, that it checks in the youthful mind the habit of thinking for itself, 
that it delivers partial opinions and thereby misleads the judgment that it is never conducted with a view to the general interests of literature but to serve the interested ends of individuals and the miserable purposes of party mr mcclorrell you can sir a man more mr escott while well, he can live honourably naturally justly certainly no longer mr mcclorrell ever monsieur lead according to his own nations of honour and justice there's a wee difference among the learned with respect to the definition of the terms mr escott i believe it is generally admitted that one of the ingredients of justice is disinterestedness mr mcclorrell it is not admitted sir among the philosophers of edinburgh that there is only one set thing as disinterestedness in the world or that a man can care for anything so much as his own self for you man observe sir every man has his own particular feelings as what is good and beautiful and consentaneous to his own individual nature and desires to see everything about him in that particular state which is most conformable to his own nations of the moral and political fitness of things. Tom men, sir, shall purchase a piece of ground atween em, and a man shall cover his half with a park. Mr. Milestone. Beautifully laid out in lawns and clumps, with a belt of trees at the circumference, and an artificial lake in the centre. Mr. McClurrell. Exactly, sir, and shall keep it for his own self and the other man shall divide his half into little farms a tower three acres mr escott like those of the roman republic and build a cottage on each of them and cover his land with a simple innocent and smiling population who shall owe not only their happiness but their existence to his benevolence mr mcclurrell exactly sir and you will call the first-born selfish and the second disinterested but the philosophical truth is simply this that Diane is pleased with looking at trees and the other with seeing people happy and comfortable. It is only a matter of individual feeling. A peasant saves a man's life for the same reason that a hero or a footpad cuts his thrapple, and a philosopher delivers a man from a prison for the same reason that a tailor or a prime minister puts him into it because it is conformable to his own particular feelings of the moral and political fitness of things squire headlong wake the reverend doctor doctor the bottle stands with you the reverend dr gaster it is an error of which i am seldom guilty mr mcclorrell no you can sir every man is a centre of his own system and endeavours as much as possible to adapt everything around him to his own particular views mr escott thus sir i presume it suits the particular views of a poet at one time to take the part of the people against their oppressors and at another to take the part of the oppressors against the people mr mcclorrell your monologue sir that poetry is a sort of ware or commodity that is brought into the public market with uh, other descriptions of merchandise and that a man is perfectly justified in getting the best price he can for his article now there are three reasons for taking the part of the people the first is 
when the general liberty and public happiness are conformable to your own particular feelings of the moral and political fitness of things the second is when they happen to be as it were in a state of excitability and you think you can get a good price for your commodity by flinging in a little seasoning of philanthropy and republican spirit and the third is when you think you can bully the ministry into giving you a place or a pension to hold you didn't and in that case you point an attack against them within the pale of the law and if they take no heed of you you open a stronger fire and the less heed they take the more you ball and the more factious you grow always within the pale of the law till they send a plenipotentiary to treat with you for yourself and then the more popular you happen to be the better price you fetch squire headlong off with your heel taps mr cranium i perfectly agree with mr mclaurel in his definition of self-love and disinterestedness every man's actions are determined by his peculiar views and those views are determined by the organization of his skull a man in whom the organ of benevolence is not developed cannot be benevolent he in whom it is so cannot be otherwise the organ of self-love is prodigiously developed in the greater number of subjects that have fallen under my observation mr escott much less i presume among savage than civilized men who constant only to the love of self and consistent only in their aim to deceive are always actuated by the hope of personal advantage or by the dread of personal punishment mr cranium very probably mr escott you have of course found very copious specimens of the organs of hypocrisy destruction and avarice mr cranium secretiveness destructiveness and covetiveness you may add if you please that of constructiveness mr escott meaning i presume the organ of building which i contend to be not a natural organ of the featherless biped mr cranium pardon me it is here as he said these words he produced a skull from his pocket and placed it on the table to the great surprise of the company this was the skull of sir christopher wren you observe this protuberance the skull was handed round the table mr escott i contend that the original unsophisticated man was by no means constructive he lived in the open air under a tree the reverend dr gaster ah the tree of life unquestionably till he had tasted the forbidden fruit mr jenkinson at which period probably the organ of constructiveness was added to his anatomy as a punishment for his transgression mr escott there could not have been a more severe one since the propensity which has led him to building cities has proved the greatest curse of his existence squire headlong taking the skull memento mori come a bumper of burgundy mr nightshade a very classical application squire headlong the romans were in the practice of adhibiting skulls at their banquets and sometimes little skeletons of silver as a silent admonition to the guest to enjoy life while it lasted the reverend dr gaster sound doctrine mr nightshade mr escott 
I question its soundness. The use of vinous spirit has a tremendous influence in the deterioration of the human race. Mr. Foster. I fear indeed it operates as a considerable check to the progress of the species towards moral and intellectual perfection. Yet many great men have been of the opinion that it exalts the imagination, fires the genius, accelerates the flow of ideas, and imparts to dispositions naturally cold and deliberative that enthusiastic sublimation which is the source of greatness and energy. Mr. Nightshade. Homer is proved to have been a lover of wine by the praises he bestows upon it. Mr. Jenkinson. I conceive the use of wine to be always pernicious in excess, but often useful in moderation. It certainly kills some, but it saves the lives of others. I find that an occasional glass, taken with judgment and caution, has a very salutary effect in maintaining that equilibrium of the system which it is always my aim to preserve and this calm and temperate use of wine was no doubt what homer meant to inculcate when he said a cup of wine at hand to drink as inclination prompts squire headlong good pass the bottle sir christopher does not seem to have raised our spirits chromatic favour us with a specimen of your vocal powers something in point mr chromatic without further preface immediately struck up the following song in his last bed sir peter lies who knew not what it was to frown death took him mellow by surprise and in his cellars darted him down and we could not boast a night more gay more prompt than he to rise and fill a bumper toast and pass it round with three times three none better do the peace to sway or keep nurse bought in better trim for nature had but little clay like that of which she moulded him the meanest guess that graced his board was there the preest of the free his bumper toast when peter poured and passed it round with three times three he kept a true good humor's mark, the social flow of pleasure's tide. He never made a brow of dark, nor caused a tear but when he died. 
no sorrow around his tomb should dwell more pleased his gay old ghost would be he for funeral song and passing bell to hear no sound but three times three hammering of knuckles and glasses and shouts of bravo mr panscope suddenly emerging from a deep reverie i have heard with the most profound attention everything which the gentleman on the other side of the table has thought proper to advance on the subject of human deterioration and i must take the liberty to remark that it augurs a very considerable degree of presumption in any individual to set himself up against the authority of so many great men as may be marshalled in metaphysical failings under the opposite banners of the controversy such as aristotle plato the scholiast on aristophanes saint chrysostom saint jerome saint athanasius orpheus pindar simonides grenovius hemster Hucius, longinus sir isaac newton thomas paine dr paley the king of prussia the king of poland cicero monsieur gautier hippocrates machiavelli milton Colley gibber bohardo gregory nazianzinus locke d'alembert boccaccio daniel defoe erasmus dr smollett zimmerman solomon confucius zoroaster and thomas akempis mr Escott i presume sir you are one of those who value an authority more than a reason mr panscope the authority sir of all these great men whose works as well as the whole of the encyclopaedia britannica the entire series of the monthly review the complete set of the variorum classics and the memoirs of the academy of inscriptions i have read through from beginning to end deep hoses with irrefragable refutation against your ratiocinative speculations wherein you seem desirous by the futile process of analytical dialectics to subvert the pyramidal structure of synthetically deduced opinions which have withstood the secular revolutions of physiological disquisition and which i maintain to be transcendentally self-evident categorically certain and syllogistically demonstrable squire headlong bravo pass the bottle the very best speech that ever was made mr escott it only has the slight disadvantage of being unintelligible mr panscope i am not obliged sir as dr johnson observed on a similar occasion to furnish you with an understanding mr escott i fear sir you would have some difficulty in furnishing me with such an article from your own stock mr panscope Sadith, sir do you question my understanding mr escott i only question sir where i expect a reply which from things that have no existence i am not visionary enough to anticipate mr panscope i beg leave to observe sir that my language was perfectly perspicuous and etymologically correct and i conceive i have demonstrated what i shall now take the liberty to say in plain terms that all your opinions are extremely absurd mr escott i should be sorry sir to advance any opinion that you would not think absurd mr panscope death and fury sir mr escott 
say no more sir that apology is quite sufficient mr panscope apology sir mr escott even so sir you have lost your temper which i consider equivalent to a confession that you have the worst of the argument mr panscope lightning and devil sir a squire headlong no civil war temperance in the name of bacchus a glee a glee music has charms to bend the knotted oak sir patrick you'll join sir patrick o'prism troth with all my heart for by my soul i'm bothered completely squire headlong agreed then you and i and chromatic bumpers come strike up squire headlong mr chromatic and sir patrick o'prism each holding a bumper immediately vociferated the following glee by Squire Headlong, Mr. Chromatic, Sir Patrick O'Prism, Mr. Panscope, Mr. Jenkinson, Mr. Ghoul, Mr. Treacle, Mr. Nightshade, Mr. McLaurel, Mr. Cranium, Mr. Milestone, and the Reverend Dr. Gaster. A din and a hubbub arose. The little butler now waddled in with a summons from the ladies to tea and coffee. The squire was unwilling to leave his burgundy. Mr. Escott strenuously urged the necessity of immediate adjournment, observing that the longer they continued drinking, the worse they should be. Mr. Foster seconded the motion, declaring the transition from the bottle to female society to be an indisputable amelioration of the state of the sensitive man. Mr. Jenkinson allowed the squire and his two brother philosophers to settle the point between them, concluding that he was just as well in one place as another. The question of adjournment was then put, and carried by a large majority. End of chapter 5